Well, Father, we do thank you that we can open your word together and discern the truth of your word. I pray that as a community, as we study this together, as we reflect on the great truths of this passage and the great truths that are true of you, uh, that you will conform us to the image of your Son. I pray that this word will give encouragement to those who need it, conviction to those who's necessary, and all of us will be edified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was about uh, four years old when my family took a trip to California, and as is the Hintz way, we stayed at friends' houses so we could spend money for our tickets to Disneyland, which were actually cheap back then. And we stayed at this one house, some friends of my, my dad, and, and they didn't have kids, which was a minor disappointment for me because there weren't any toys or kids to play with. Uh, and, and I remember it was a very clean, well-kept home, and, but there was something kind of unusual about this home. I, I began to figure out that this couple we were staying with weren't married. Now, this is the 70s and cohabitating was, that was like the first time I've ever been in a cohabitating uh, household. Uh, I don't really have a grid for a man and a woman living together who weren't married. So being the curious little four-year-old I, I was, we all sat down for dinner. And I decided to address the issue at hand. <laughs> I asked the question, so why aren't you guys married? My poor parents. Well, it was greeted with stunned silence, so I decided to play the love therapist and ask a follow-up question. Don't you guys love each other? <laughs> My poor parents. <laughs> I have many stories that I have done that I have not disclosed to even my own family for fear that my kids will do the same thing, but <laughs> I'm sharing this with you. And they uh, looked at each other kind of in an embarrassed way and said, uh, yes, their relationship fixed, right? I thought I did something. But that was uh, my first experience of seeing a, a man and a woman living together and cohabitating, and it didn't really make sense in my world. And this past week, uh, I was on a ski trip, and I hung out with a, you know, a bunch of men, uh, uh, a number of 40-year-old bachelors, by the way. And most of them were not Christians, and some of them were going through some midlife crises, you know, here I am, 43 years old, you know, built my career, I want to get married, and, and I don't have that. And many of them have had live-in girlfriends, and they never really had even the end game of marriage, never even considered it. And I asked one of them, so why haven't you gotten married? And he said, my dad was, uh, I was six when my dad passed away. And I've never seen uh, a real working marriage up close. So it wasn't marriage that he was afraid of. It was what might happen when it fails. I came across an article this past week called The, the Marriage Problem, Why Many Are Choosing Cohabitation Instead. And the reporter, Alice Walton, writes this. One reason for this increased interest in cohabitation over marriage may not be the fear of the union itself 
so much as a concern for the possibility of its collapse. In other words, it may be the looming prospect of divorce that's driving more people to choose the question, will you move in with me over will you marry me? Now, obviously, when you get married, you are legally bound together. You have shared assets. When you have children, you have a shared family life together. And to, to break that up is extremely costly. And so when people kind of move in this direction, will you move in with me instead of marry me, there's, it's really done out of a concern for self-preservation, isn't it? What happens if this goes wrong? What will happen to me? What will happen to my assets? What will happen to our children? How can I get out of this in one piece? And interestingly, when people cohabitate and then get married, they actually have higher divorce rates. And so when you ask that question to that couple, well, when I ask that question, do you love each other? They hesitantly said yes. But can it really be love when the goal is self-preservation? Now, as we study the book of Ruth, we are being introduced to really the theme of Ruth, which is hesed love. It's the covenantal loyal love that is demonstrated towards all kinds of parties involved, right? You see the loyal love of Ruth for Naomi, right? She will leave her, her land, her family, her prospects for having a husband to, to basically serve her mother-in-law, right? Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my gods. Where you go, I will go. I mean, that is a loyalty there. You see a loyalty that, that Yahweh has towards Naomi where he's still ministering to her in spite of her bitter spirit towards him. And then we're introduced to the loyal love of Boaz. In fact, we read the last time I preached, Ruth 3, 10 through 14, about the midnight proposal and his response to it. And he said, Boaz says to Ruth, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Right? She is someone who's shown a noble, self-sacrificial quality about her. She took care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. She's willing to sacrifice the, the prospects of a younger uh, husband so that she can marry a relatively older man. She was willing to use marriage as a means of serving other people. And, and Boaz sees her as a worthy woman, one who has shown herself to be an exemplar of, of Hesed love. And now we see Boaz show his character. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, key phrase, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He has just made a promise. 
right? Promises are easy to make, but harder to keep. And what we are about to see as we go through chapter 4 is that Boaz will stop at nothing to keep his promise. We see that he is a worthy man because he's a, a promise keeper, which might be a good name for a men's ministry. <laughs> Keep that in mind. But I think this gives some insight into what makes this a real beautiful love story, is that you have two people characterized by Hesed love who fall in love with each other. Now, it's no coincidence, because we don't believe in coincidences at this church, we believe in providence, that in preaching this sermon on the eve of Valentine's Day, in fact, I was introduced to a new term today, Galentine's Day. <laughs> you don't know what it is. Well, I, I did until this morning. It's when women get together, the gals get together and have a Galentine's Day, right? And obviously, when you're single and thinking that someday I want to get married, there's, there's a lot of things that you might look for in a man or a woman, but we'll, we'll start with a man. I actually Googled it. Google's a very helpful uh, sermon illustration uh, technology. You know, what women look for in a man, and, and these were the top three. Number one, sense of humor. Sense of humor explains a lot how I got Becky, you know. <laughs> Secondly, yeah, it's a sign of it. It signals intelligence, by the way. Uh, women are often drawn to men with ambition and confidence. And uh, I didn't say anything. <laughs> you wonder, I'm just saying. And they also are drawn to men who come across as caring and compassionate. And do you know what really sells that? Buy a dog. Buy a dog. It's just what I read, okay? So I know some men are thinking, I can get a puppy. I can get a puppy, you know? <laughs> but I think if you really want to be attractive to the right kind of girl, what is it that they should look for? And I think that's being a man of integrity, a man of high character, someone who keeps his promises. Because really at its core, when you look at this definition of hesed love, right, this covenantal love, it's the ability to keep your promises. It's the courage to make promises promises, and it's the conviction to do what must be done to make that happen. And that's exactly what we see Boaz do as he demonstrates his character for all the world to see. So our theme is promised love, and we see six ways that he shows his promised love. We see that promised love is prompt, promised love is active, promised love is proper, promised love is committed, promised love is selfless, and promised love blesses. That's too fast for you. We got the outline right there. It'll go along with me. But in all this, we, we see that he proves himself. He proves himself to be a worthy man. Now, as we kind of build up to this narrative, uh, there is some tension, right? We're all excited. Ruth and Boaz have discovered each other. I just knew it would happen. But there always has to be some plot twist, right? He says, there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's somebody else who can take you from me. And so he decides that he's going to get to work and make it happen. He's not just making this casual promise. There is a sense where he really wants to marry Ruth as a worthy woman. 
but he has this obligation to the community to give the other Redeemer a chance. And so, we see him in action the next day, and what we see is that promised love is prompt. Now, the night before, there is a midnight proposal, and then Ruth returns to tell Naomi the good news. And look at 3.18. Naomi tells Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Don't you just love that? He will not rest. He's going to get her done. He's going to get her done. Next verse. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. He made a promise and immediately he takes action. He is prompt. Now when we were parenting our children in the younger days, there were three rules of obedience. You have to obey all the way, the happy way, and right away. Right away. Right? Hey, son, can you take out the trash? This is a video game console. Yeah, sure. Can you do it now? Oh, oh, now? Now, when you're playing the video game as you're being asked to take out the trash, you're basically saying, trash can wait. I'm on level 16 of Halo, right? But when you put it down right away, you basically say, your wish is my command. Your wish is your desires. That is my number one priority. I'm going to take care of business right away for you. You see, when you serve someone, when you respond to their request and you do it away, that is a way of showing honor, that I will serve you on your timetable, not mine. Now, granted, there's intersecting responsibilities that we have to keep in mind. Like if my wife wants me to um, change an electrical outlet, I can't just go back from work right away. I have to do it at the right time and the right way after I turn off the circuit breakers. You know, there's some things that you have to keep in mind. But the heart is, I want to honor you and do so right away. And that is what Boaz is doing. He doesn't go check on his crops. He doesn't check on the workforce. He doesn't make sure that the grain is being taken to the market. He made a promise to Ruth and he intends to keep it. Secondly, we see that promised love is active. It is active. He's not passive. He is active. Verse 1 again. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So <clears throat> he needs to find the other redeemer. He needs to have a conversation with him. And so he goes to the gate. Now in that day and age, the, the gate was the central artery of the city. They usually had some rooms where some guards would be posted. All traffic would go in and out. And it was kind of the, the social center of the town. And so if you wanted to find this other redeemer and your Boaz, the gate is the place to be. And it worked. Verse 1. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took Ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, what's up with the elders? Well, he's forming a quorum here. The city business often took place 
at the city gate. That's where the elders would often cast judgment, decide certain things, adjudicate disputes. And so he finds 10 elders, and he wants to form a, um, a quorum where you can have a, a legal discussion about the future of Naomi's land and discuss the prospect of marrying Ruth. Now, what I find interesting about this is he doesn't just wait for the opportunity to happen. He doesn't just wait for the opportunity to happen. Right? O often when we fail to keep our promises, it's because of circumstances outside of our control. Yeah, I know I was going to talk to my boss about the raise, but he was just in a bad mood. I, I did call the plumber, but he hasn't called me back for three weeks. I don't know what to do. We'll just never use that toilet again. Yeah, I was going to talk to the neighbor about the dog who bit our three-year-old, but I knocked and he didn't answer. I don't know. I mean, passivity is not godliness. There, there is something to making the opportunity. If you love someone and you make a promise, you will not rest until it comes to pass. Thirdly, we see that promised love is proper. Boaz, remember how he guarded her purity that night? He, he wanted to make sure that when he did talk to the Redeemer, he gave him a genuine offer and allowed him to play the part that he was called to play. So in verse 3, he has a formal quorum here. He's going to give the legal proceedings. Then he said to the Redeemer in front of all these witnesses, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and come after you. Now, Boaz is very, very shrewd here. Okay, we're going to talk about his strategy a little bit later on. But he doesn't start with a marriage proposal. He basically starts with an offer of redeeming property and redeeming land. Now, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit complex to the modern ears, so I'll try to simplify it for you. In Israel... Families owned the land, and the land was to be passed down from generation to generation. And given the fixed boundaries between all the tribes, it was very important to keep the land within the clan. Now, you could buy and sell land, but during the year of Jubilee, all land was given back to the original family line. Okay? You with me so far? Now, the other factor is that a woman couldn't own the land. Land was to be under the care and control of a male. And so if a father dies, it goes to the son or the grandson. Or if there is no, no sons or grandsons, it would go to the nearest male relative. And so Naomi didn't actually have the land. She kind of had a lease to the land. 
And what likely happened is when Elimelech, during the drought, decided to move to Moab, he sold the right to use the land to a third party who's outside the family. And now that Naomi is back, this third party is obligated to sell the land back to the family he bought it from. And given that Jubilee might not be too far away, he'd be very motivated to do so. You following me? And so he offers the land to this nearest relative. Now, if you are a nearest relative, this is a very attractive offer. You purchase the land rights from this third party, and you are esteemed as a kinsman redeemer. Right? We, we have companies like this, right? They want to be socially conscious, environmentally friendly. You know, somebody who is part of this bigger global cause. And so he would have the social esteem of redeeming a relative and showing himself to be a good Israelite. Secondly, he could actually use the land to expand his farming operation. All he has to do is take care of Naomi. Thirdly, given that Naomi is not going to have any sons, when she passes away, that land will permanently be part of his estate. Do you see how beneficial this would be? So he says, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. So Boaz gives him the first right of redemption. He gives him an attractive offer. But to a certain extent, it's kind of a setup how he does this. Because he would be motivated in front of these ten elders to show himself to be a good Israelite. One who is motivated to preserve the family name of Elimelech. You know, probably one of the elders of that town who used to sit at the gate with them. He would show himself to be virtuous and caring for Naomi. And the reason why they had these redemption laws was so that they can serve their relatives and keep family lines intact. And so, in the spirit of that redemption law, there is another law that is to come into play. The law of leverate marriage. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz is blending the laws of redemption with leverate marriage. Now, this is how leverate marriage worked. Deuteronomy teaches that if a brother dies, it is the other brother's obligation to basically impregnate the widow so that she could give birth to a son who would carry on his brother's name. And should he not do so, this is one of my favorite passages in the scripture for some strange reason, the widow was to take away this derelict brother's sandal and spit in his face. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to see that? Because one of the most fearful curses in Israel is this. May your seed perish and your name die out. A man's name is his legacy. That is how he lives on. And when that is extinguished, that is a shame and dishonor to him. 
And so it makes sense if you want to redeem somebody's land, it's because you want to preserve their name. That is a noble reason for doing so. And it also makes sense that you would also want to make sure that he can raise up a son to continue his name because that's the same spirit of the law. And so even though Boaz is likely not a brother with this redeemer and not a brother with Elimelech, what he's doing in front of this audience of elders who likely knew Elimelech is he's basically arguing it that the spirit of the law is that we preserve the name of Elimelech. The spirit of the law is that we preserve his property so he can continue his name in the family line. And the spirit of the law is that we take Ruth to be a wife so that she could give birth to a son to continue the name of Elimelech. Do you see what he's arguing? Now the Redeemer's having some second thoughts. So if I were to buy this land, I'd have to spend money and not only to take care of Naomi, but also Ruth and possibly their child. And if he doesn't have any sons, then all his property will go to Elimelech and it'll be under Elimelech's name and not his own. Then the Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, all this to say, this was shrewd, but it was not illegal. Of his own free will, the Redeemer decided to walk away from the deal. In every sense, Boaz was abiding by the cultural norms. He was acting in a proper way. He was conducting himself with decorum and propriety. He wasn't going to cheat the Redeemer or even destabilize the community by doing things that were kind of out of bounds out of love for Ruth, right? A father doesn't steal toys to provide Christmas, kids, Christmas gifts to his kids out of love for his kids, right? Your love is global. It is consistent across all spheres. Now, let me tell you about Rick and Jesse. Okay, Rick and Jesse are, are best friends, grew up in church together, even went to college together and became roommates. And during their final year, uh, Jesse begins to uh, date Mary. Mary is a real sweet Christian woman uh, that they met at church, seems to be godly, and and as Rick and Jesse, you know, talk at, at night, it's, it's becoming more clear that um, Jesse's not as into Mary. He's been thinking about breaking up, not sure if they really have a future, he wants to go to med school, maybe now's not the right time for a relationship. And, but all the time, you know, Rick really enjoys talking to Mary. They connect, they have great conversations. And if Rick is just honest with himself, he wants Jesse's girl. Because <laughs> where can he find a woman like that? <laughs> like I said, women look for a sense of humor. <laughs> you know. I mean, so 
but you see the, you know, what should he do in that situation? I know. Yeah, what should he, I know too, right? What, what should he do in that, what should he do in that situation? I mean, should Rick just try to swipe Jesse's girl? I mean, there is kind of a dude code that says it's not cool to steal your best friend's girl. Right? There is a sense of propriety about that. Where you recognize that out of love, your love for someone else doesn't justify you doing an unloving action for somebody else. It means you don't sin against God. It means you don't violate those friendships. That there is a way out where you can simultaneously love your friend, wait for things to play out, and conduct yourself in an honorable way so that you knew that you wooed her in a very honorable way as well. Because honestly, if Rick were to go around propriety and steal the girlfriend, what kind of confidence will Mary have that he won't do the same at a future point in time? Right? How you win a girl, how you conduct yourself with propriety is reflective of a deeper global commitment to love. Fourth, we see that promised love is committed. Now, as you recall, the other redeemer backed away from the prospect of marrying Ruth because it was too financially costly for him. It can cost him his inheritance. But you know, Boaz had the same cost. He had the same cost, and yet he was willing to do so. And not only was he willing to, uh, to do so, he was proving it over and over again. Remember when he was providing for Naomi and Ruth by giving the extra grain? He had the Hesed love, and he wasn't afraid to put words to it. And so he makes a very detailed oath, starting in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, kind of what's the deal with sandals, right? And gave it to the other. And this was a matter of attesting in Israel. And so the, the narrator is giving a little bit of background because there must be some cultural distance between when the story happened and when the audience was reading it. But apparently when he wanted to seal the deal, um, you basically took the person's sandal as proof that we had a deal. See, I still have your, your sandal. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he drew off his sandal. And then he says in verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And Ruth, the, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in the inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses today. Then all of the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. He gets specific, right? This is the first oath of many because someday a son will be born to Ruth and Elimelech and what will he do with that son? He will make good on the promise to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. You see, he is not afraid to make a promise. Now, often when couples will live together, they, they will say, well, why do we need to get married? We don't need a marriage ceremony to prove that we love each other. Well, why not make the commitment? You know, there's a reason why 
when we have a marriage ceremony, we have witnesses as people make vows because they are not afraid to make a promise to the other person in the company of many witnesses so that we can all be held accountable, right? Uh, a promised love is not afraid of actually making the promise and being held to it, even if it means sacrifice on their part. The fifth part, promised love is selfless. Look specifically at verse 10. Second half, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Now, it is very clear that Boaz loved Ruth. Boaz loved Naomi. And Boaz loved Elimelech. Isn't that interesting? This was an act of love for Ruth, Naomi, and Elimelech, who used to sit at the gate with these elders, who Elimelech was probably a, a cousin of Boaz, who they knew each other. And Boaz does not want to see the name of his friend die out. And so... His marriage is about preserving the legacy of somebody else. I mean, how would he feel about that? I have a friend whose brother died while training for special forces, and uh, one of his brother's good friends ended up marrying the widow and raising the two young sons who took on their deceased father's last name. And it was a, an interesting balance. You know, those of you who've lost someone, you know that it is. But, you know, the, the man loved his wife, loved his kids, but also loved their father and ex-husband. Deceased husband, I guess that's more accurate. You see, the thing about Hesed love is it's global. You're not limited in your expression of it. And that is how Boaz shows his character, where he is willing to sacrifice and be the second husband, not be the first love, for the sake of a relative who died. It is an act of selfless sacrifice, and it's probably the greatest act of selfless sacrifice we see in this passage right here. And then we finally see that promised love blesses. The, the townspeople have just witnessed something beautiful. And this is what they say. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now remember, the, the firstborn son goes to who? To Naomi. And the townspeople are like, we are so moved by the sacrifice, we want you to have 12 sons, just like Rachel and Leah, the patriarchs, you know, the matriarchs of Israel, right? We want you to have not just one son, but many sons because of this heroic act that you have done. And then in verse 11, I'm going to quote from the NASB, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Jerusalem. 
right? With a large family, there's renown and there's, there's free work and labor. May he build up your house and make you wealthy. And then in verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Do you guys know the story of Tamar? Yeah. It's a PG-13 portion of the Bible. Okay, so I will, no kids worship, I'll be discreet. So Tamar was married to Judah's son, Er. Er did something bad, maybe, and he died. And so because of the law of love-right marriage, Onan, his brother, had to perform his duty. And he refused to impregnate Tamar. And so God killed him. And Judah told his daughter-in-law, just sit tight, just wait until this three-year-old grows up. And she thought, I'm having none of this. And so she dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. She has some maneuvering to get out from under trouble. And then she gives birth to twins. The first of the twins is Perez, who is a patriarch of the clan of Bethlehem. Okay? And you're thinking, that's a weird story, and it is. It is. So how is that even a blessing? Well, if you take the rabbinical tactic of arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? If this devious, dirty, levirate marriage was able to produce a blessing like Perez and produce this town, how much more will this beautiful, appropriate courtship produce an even greater heir? And as we keep on reading, it does through David and Sunday School Answer and ultimately through Jesus, through Jesus. You see, they're asking for a blessing. This is beautiful. This is right. For two people with Hesed love to come together is just so appropriate. Now, we don't live in, in Israel we don't have like promised blessings, material given to us when we uh, obey God's commands, but there is a sense of spiritual blessings that come when two people live out this promised love with each other. Uh, one of our um, theme verses when Beck and I got married was Proverbs fifteen seventeen. Better is a dinner with herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Right? If you have a household characterized by love, it doesn't matter if you live in a shanty town in South Africa, if you live in the slums of, of New Delhi. If there's love, I mean, that is a happy, rich, rewarding home. You can live in Trump Tower or the Palace of Versailles and have hatred in the marriage and you would rather live on the corner of a roof. You see, when you look at Christianity, when two Christians come together in the spirit of Christian love and unity, there is flourishing. There is flourishing. Because what love does is it frees us from our addiction to self. 
Like when you look at the cancer of any marriage or any relationship or any friendship, right? It's selfishness. It is selfishness. When people are all about pleasing themselves, when they get mad that you're not pleasing me enough, it's just me, 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 me. The gospel breaks the power of that. Romans 6, 6 through 7, and we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when your heart is freed, you don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to explode at your wife. You don't have to look at those lusty internet images. You are free to be content and thankful and grateful. And when two people experience this kind of love, they're able to give it to other people because a marriage is not about them anymore. Now, I read a fascinating study this past week about marriages and the type of weddings that you have and the relationship to the marriages that you have. And this is what the studies found. Two economic professors came together and they found the correlation between weddings and divorce rates. If you spend over $20,000 in your wedding, you are 1.6 times more likely to get divorced than someone who spent between five dollars and $10,000. Isn't that kind of interesting? And the more people you invite to your wedding the greater the prospects are that it will last. So if you want to have a long-lasting marriage, have a big, cheap wedding. <laughs> Fathers of daughters are rejoicing everywhere. Look, Pastor Dave said, it's burgers and ruffles, babe. I want it to last. So why, why is that? Why is that? I mean, there's some speculation that might be economic pressure that the big wedding puts on the couple, or uh, it might be that the big wedding kind of masks some deeper issues in the marriage. But when you look at, uh, this would be my theory. Sometimes when you want to have that big, fancy wedding, it can turn a woman into bridezilla. Wedding coordinators, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is my day. Oh, they can't come to the wedding. We need to trim the list. You realize it's 200 bucks a pop? Oh, I don't know about them. Yeah, let's not invite the coworkers, okay? Your cousins can come, but not their children. Okay, not your cousins. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, what's happening is that day can be all about you. In contrast, the big cheap wedding is like, hey, bring everybody. Bring everybody. No, have them come too. We don't want to leave anybody out. We don't want to exclude anyone. You see, the heart of that couple is the wedding is about serving who? It's about serving their guest. Oh, this is a chance for everyone to hear the gospel. We don't want to turn anyone away. Bring them on. Well, it's going to cost a lot. Well, we'll just have burgers and ruffles then. You see, that's a wedding that's not about you. It's about the Lord. It's about other people. And when you carry that into a, an actual relationship, it's a beautiful thing. And ultimately, God doesn't care about your wedding. He does care about your marriage. And so this is the hope. You know, if you want to have the 
type of promised love is to be a promise keeper, right? And to be a promise keeper, it doesn't just happen by accident. Sometimes it happens by an event. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And, and instead of just saying, well, when she starts to love me in the promised way, then I'll love her back. If you look at this passage, no, no. When Jesus starts to love you in the promised way, you start loving her back. And, and have you ever thought about all the promise that she, promises that Jesus has made to you? I'll never leave you and never forsake you. All these things will be provided for you. If I go and prepare a place, I'll come again and bring you to myself. If you confess you with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, Jesus put a lot on the line, and he's made a lot of promises to us, and he takes special delight in keeping them, even if that meant that he was crucified on the cross. And so when we look at Boaz, we kind of look past Boaz, so we look, Christ, look to Christ, to the one who does give a promised love and loves us in that perfect, tested way. And the more we experience that and meditate on that, the more beautiful we see it and the more we seek to give it to other people. If you want to love someone well, want to love someone well, keep your promises. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are just so grateful for the example of Boaz and the beautiful marriage between Ruth and Boaz and how they were characterized by Hesed love. And Father, I know many of us um, fall short of that and we thank you for your grace, but we ask that Christ will be formed in us and in each other and that we will be a church community that celebrates this. And Lord, I pray for the, the singles um, who are not yet married. I know sometimes hearing about romance and and those, these topics can be difficult to hear, but Lord, we all live in community and we all live in relationship, and I pray that they will find the application to love other people, their friends and their family, with the same kind of promised love, and that our community will be distinguished by the Hesed love that we see. 